But when I was nine years old and I was still at Kwajalein, I heard this story that a scientist from the Bishop Museum had named a fish after a guy on Kwajalein. And it just like, my nine-year-old brain like exploded. Like I couldn't believe <laughs> when I was nine years old that there were fish that weren't in this book that I had turned into my Bible, that there were still new species of fish, new to science that people had not found yet. Off-gassing, a scuba podcast with host Nick Hogel. In this episode, I speak with ichthyology research specialist Brian Green. Growing up in Kwajalein Atoll in the Republic of the Marshall Islands, Brian learned to dive at a very young age. When he was just nine years old, he came across the book Micronesian Reef Fishes, and from that point on, he made it a mission to find every fish he could. The Bishop Museum, challenges of remote expeditions, advice for up-and-coming ichthyologists, and much more. I hope you enjoy. Brian, how are you doing this early afternoon? I'm doing great. Good to see you again. Nice, nice. No, it's good to see you too again, man. And so you you were saying you were just saying you have an event going on at the Bishop Museum. What's going on there? It is the intertribal powwow Native American event that I forgot was happening today. <laughs> uh, so I, I came to the museum to find a quiet place to do this podcast with you and forgot that uh, there was there'd be like a couple thousand people in the courtyard outside. <laughs> Okay. Well, uh, hopefully, hopefully it's not too much sound, but that does sound very interesting. It looks fun out there, actually. So yeah. <laughs> so I'll just you know jump right in, dive right in, as they say. Um, so tell me about how and why you got into scuba diving. About that first experience, that first breath underwater. Tell me, tell me about that whole experience. Sure. Yeah. So I had a very unique childhood and upbringing. Um, I grew up on Kwajalein Atoll in the Republic of the Marshall Islands, so like dead center of the Central Pacific. And uh, I moved there. My parents moved there when I was just six months old. And I, I basically, my entire childhood was adventures out in the Central Pacific and Micronesia till I uh, graduated high school and, and came to Hawaii to study marine biology. But what brought your parents out there? So my, my, my dad was a, a contractor for the government um, and the U.S. government has a, a small base at Kwajalein in the Marshall Islands. So he was he, he worked out there most of his career and uh, it was just a, a, a really cool, unique place to grow up. And, and it, it's very small. So the island, the, the actual island I grew up on is part of, the, it's the largest coral atoll in the world, but the actual island at the southern end of the atoll is only three and a half miles by half a mile. So there's, it's super small. Most, uh, if you look at like satellite images or aerial images, you know, it looks like mostly runway. <laughs> so there's not a whole lot to do there as a kid or even as an as an adult there's not a whole lot of you know outlets or anything to do except uh things that are ocean related you know fishing diving uh you know snorkeling water skiing yeah that's that's what we that's what, that's what we did as kids but uh you know we're surrounded by the largest lagoon of any atoll in the world and beautiful healthy coral reefs especially back then in the in the 80s i just sort of became a fish nerd at a super early age and my, my dad was my dad started diving soon after we moved there like in 80 or 81 and uh he started having you know, large aquariums in the house when i was just a baby and i think that like 
kind of solidified and burned into my brain, like even before I even knew it. I was like three or four years old. I was already like teaching myself the Latin names of uh, all the fishes and all the fish books. So I, I started out early, uh, you know, way, way before I was able to dive, I was a total fish nerd and, and, and snorkeling even on my own without my parents going out and finding all the weird fish around Kwajalein and uh, that's kind of how it started. Oh, okay. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. So did you become certified on the island or did... I did. Yeah. It was it was something that I was, you know, because I was a, basically a water baby and, and in the water anyway, before I was old enough to dive, it was, it was a big deal because I remember like... I remember like counting down the years and then the months and then the days to when I could actually get certified. And we planned it so that I started my actual training for my just patty open water, open water. I don't even think there was junior open water in, in 91 when I started it. But we timed it so that my actual first like certification or certification dive open water dive was on my birthday when i turned 12 because <laughs> back then like i'm not sure what the patty rules are maybe you can start younger now but back then you had to be 12 years old so okay, we okay. start we started my training when i was you know right at the end of 11 and then it finished right when i turned 12 years old but i had i had been diving you know unofficially with my dad a couple times and you know riding on his back in shallow water breathing off the octopus and that kind of stuff <laughs> that's awesome man so tell me about you know after the open water certification because you obviously have a, a pretty pretty good resume of time underwater so tell me about you know obviously there was a, a love for the water there so i'm sure it wasn't very difficult the time of your certification to move forward with that. <laughs> no so yeah i mean after that like it it's it's all just kind of a blur up until today. Like it's been since I got certified, <laughs> it's just been this like this constant thing in my life, you know. So I, I mean, um, once I was certified and and able to you know go out on boats and go diving, we always had our own private boat, personal boat, so we had access to the lagoon and the outside of the atoll where there's super steep drop-offs and. But even I'm gonna back up a little bit to even before I got the certification, there, there was this book that was published when I was nine years old, and it was called Micronesian Reef Fishes. And this book became kind of my Bible. Uh, like I wouldn't put it down; I would take it with me everywhere. And I, I, I basically memorized like all 2,000 species of fish in this book that occurred in the, in the Central and Western Pacific. And I, I made it my mission to like find every single one of those fish that occurred in the Marshall Islands I was going to find. So so I've always I've always thought of diving free even free diving, scuba diving, rebreather diving, everything is it's I've always thought of it as a tool for me to find fish. <laughs> so I'm a fish nerd first and a diver second actually. But so but also at that same time when I was 9 years old right around when that book was published, there was a guy who worked here at Bishop Museum where like in the next office, and he kind of became my idol over the years and my mentor. His name was Dr. Jack Randall, uh, John E. Randall. And he was the uh, the most prolific diving ichthyologist or actually just ichthyologist in history. He named more species of fishes than any other scientist in history. And he, he started his career right as scuba was being introduced to the public. He actually before you could buy like a commercial Cousteau style scuba rig, he, he was buying 
uh, military excess parts left over from World War II and rigging them up into some kind of dive apparatus. He built his career as uh, basically the pioneer of coral reef exploration because he was in the right place at the right time and he was also a fish nerd. So he spent his most of his career here at Bishop Museum, where I am right now, traveling all around the world, mostly in the Central and Western Pacific, the East Pacific, and named over 800 species of fishes. And that's because uh, up until you could scuba dive and actually go onto coral reefs and see what was happening there, the only other way to catch fish was, you know, hook and line. And there's a lot of fish that only eat plankton or only eat coral, and they're not going to take a hook. So and then, so he became my mentor later in life. But when I was nine years old and I was still at Kwajalein, I heard this story that a scientist from the Bishop Museum had named a fish after a guy on Kwajalein. And it just like my nine-year-old brain like exploded. Like I couldn't believe <laughs> when I was nine years old that there were fish that weren't in this book that I had turned into my Bible, that there were still new species of fish, new to science that people had not found yet. And that if you found one, somebody would name it after you. And it just like opened up this whole new world to me. So, yeah, so that that, that kind of like, even you know, well before I was studying marine biology officially or working at Bishop Museum or even into the technical deep rebreather diving, I was looking for new species of fishes. You know, from- <laughs> That's an amazing story. So tell me about the path into, you know, actually finding fish and and ichthyology, because obviously there was a drive to get there. Once I was uh, started diving, you know, as a young teenager or older kid, um, that just opened up a whole new world to me, especially living where I where I lived in the Marshall Islands on the outside of the lagoon on the outer reef. You have these like super precipitous, almost vertical drop offs that just like go into the abyss. I mean, it's almost, you know, 10, 15,000 feet deep, not far from shore in, in the Marshall Islands. So I started noticing uh, the fish got weirder the deeper I went. And that's not, not just because <laughs> I was marked, <laughs> but like I, I started noticing even before I knew that this was even a thing that if, if I was you know, pushing down past 40 meters or so, I was seeing things that shouldn't be there or nobody had ever noticed. And then, uh, you know, when I was when I was in high school is actually when I, f- I found my first new species of fish that didn't exist in any book and I didn't know what to do with it. And uh, a friend of my dad's put me in touch with that Jack Randall guy here at the Bishop Museum who had named that fish after the guy on Quaj. And that opened up a whole new world because I, I, I met Jack Randall here at Bishop Museum when I was 16 years old in the office right next door to me right now. He told me about this guy uh, that was doing these crazy rebreather dives finding new species of fish named Richard Pyle. And I was like, ooh, who's this guy? <laughs> and so Rich and I, we've been dive partners for the past 20, 25 years, but like we independently were doing this until we were kind of put in touch with each other by Jack Randall. He was a little, was a little older than me and he was doing the, the technical diving stuff in the early 90s that you know put him in line with you know the advent of, of uh, commercially available rebreathers. I was a little bit younger, so I... I didn't have a chance to get into rebreathers till like the late 90s, uh, but that was also at Kwajalein with with a, uh, a film production, or I think it was just a single film, but it was a, a, a public broadcasting thing called the Silent Rex of Kwajalein Atoll or something like that. Even before that, so I, I think back to when I was like 14 or 15 years old, I had seen this article in, in one of the dive magazines about this crazy, uh, crazy guy named Bill Stone, uh, and he's building his own <laughs> rebreathers to explore these these deep caves and 
This is this is well before I even knew Jack or anything about Richard Pyle or or anything really about what the possibilities of deep reef exploration were. were. I saw these rebreathers in this magazine and, was, and I read it. It's like, oh, they can stay down for eight hours. They can go to like 350 feet. I was like, I gotta get one of these. <laughs> <laughs> I, re I remember, like, I found this magazine at the library on Kwajalein, and I, I I took it home. Like, I stole it from the library, and I took it. I remember taking this magazine to the soccer field and showing my buddies. I was like, guys, I need to get one of these. And they're like, okay, whatever. You do that. Do whatever you need to do. <laughs> so before you obviously, I mean, you eventually landed at getting a rebreather. But before that, when you were diving to, to find these fish, were you kind of pushing the limits of Oh, I was definitely like pushing how... the limits. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I was kind of doing it blindly, like... I didn't have access to, you know, it wasn't really until like the earlier mid nineties and anybody was publishing books on technical diving anyway, but I didn't really have access to that. It the, the only access to information I really had was, were the early days of the internet. So I was, you know, I was, tr I was pushing on deep air down to 70, 80 meters, trying not to get bent. Then I, then I learned about uh, helium and I started putting, my, my mom actually ran a, a balloon business, so I had access to helium. <laughs> and I, I figured out how to put some of that in my tanks, but I didn't have proper computers or decompression planning software back then. I was just kind of cut, cutting the air with uh, a little bit of helium. So yeah, that was early days. Yeah, yeah. So at this time, were you, were you just, Solo diving, or did you have a like a buddy to go down with, or how? Technically, how to... not solo diving if you consider my friends or my dad being fifty meters shallower than me, but on at the same dive site. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, at, at depth, it was definitely solo. Um, oh, wow. I, I had a couple. I had a couple buddies who were like in high school who were interested in in uh, fish as well, but like not to the same extent I was. Um, and we we would do like sixty meter air dives after school no problem but like any of those deeper dives i would kind of i wouldn't really tell anybody about them i just do them on my own fast forward a little bit when did you eventually get your hands on a rebreather in like 99 or 2000 when i did that thing for with pbs and it was it was not the right rebreather uh okay. it was a it was a drager dolphin you know the uh semi-closed circuit thing that they were selling in the 90s and uh i quickly learned that it was it did not have the proper application for what i needed it for and i sold it almost immediately but then just about uh two years later i was able to get my hands on actually tom mount of iantd i bought his cislunar mark 5 closed circuit rebreather which was the right tool and uh i would still actually be diving that today if i had all the spare parts <laughs> how how did you land that one did you just reach out to him or no not necessarily so that's also a crazy story so in the early 2000s, I was working um, for NOAA here in Hawaii. They, we were doing, uh, we were doing back then. We were doing a lot of open circuit trimix with big, uh, double steel 120s to do science just in the Hawaiian Islands here, down to 60, 70 meters, 80 meters max, I would think. And at the time, then uh, this is like 2000 to probably 2002. Uh, there was no way that NOAA was ever going to have rebreathers. Like they were, they, they it, it was a big enough deal that they was they were allowing us to do this open circuit trimix diving, and it was very hard to convince them that 
to go the rebreather route. From a safety standpoint, or? From a safety standpoint, and it was still you know, early 2000s, you know, just commercially available rebreathers like the Inspiration and the Cis Lunar, and, and I think the Meg was out by then. You know, they, people were using them, people were doing awesome stuff, but it, it was in the early days, you know, there was a lot of fatalities, and Noah's very safety conscious. And eventually, now rebreathers are common in Noah, but back then, like, they, they were a kind of a voodoo thing. They, they hadn't really adopted them. So I was working at Noah, I was doing all these open circuit trimix dives, and then I had these two buddies. Um, who were sailing around the world or around the Pacific on their sailboat and uh, they were also from Kwajalein and they asked if I would join them on a uh, a sail from New Zealand to Tahiti so just the three of us uh, moving their boat to French Polynesia so they could try to sell it and uh, the track that we were going to sail um, I looked at the map and immediately realized it was going to take us past this island called Rapaiti which is the southernmost island in French Polynesia. And we'd have to pass by this island, probably stop there on our way up towards Tahiti. And the interesting thing about that place is there's a butterfly fish that's only found at that island. And I immediately was like, hmm, this could be a way for me to get a big chunk of change to be able to afford a rebreather as a starving college student. <laughs> So I, I joined these guys and I was able to get a, a, like a number of these butterfly fishes. They're super common and super shallow. And I, I, I kept them alive on the sailboat and brought them back to Hawaii with me. And uh, I gave a few to the Waikiki Aquarium here and they were on public display just for decade, for over a decade and a half. Like I think the last one passed away just like last year. But then a, a few of them I, uh, and I would never do this now, but back, back in the early 2000s when I was a poor college student, like I, I leaked a few of them into the Japanese aquarium trade. Um, and, and guys had, were paying top dollar for uh, rare fish from around the Pacific. And that's how I was able to come into enough money at that point that lined up with Tom Mount selling his this Lunar Mark V, and it just kind of worked out. So just, just curious, because I don't know much about the aquarium world. Is it still pretty much the same way? Like, are people paying big dollars for... I, th I, think, I think there are. There, there, I, I know of a few, very few people who are still collecting wild-caught rare fishes. The big push in the last five to ten years has been captive breeding. And I, I've been involved with some projects where we've gone and collected... You know, super rare species of reef fish, but for brood stock for for breeding, the one-off type collection, it, it, it doesn't interest me anymore. I'm, I'm, when, you know, when I was 22 years old, it was it seemed like a a great way to get a rebreather, but you know, <laughs> it doesn't line up with the science we do anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, tell me about tell me about meeting Richard. Do you remember that first introduction? So I think yeah. So Jack Randall from Bishop Museum, he introduced us at a, it was a, a graduation party for a guy who was getting his PhD here at the University of Hawaii. And um, I had just moved here from, not the Marshall Islands. So when I left the Marshall Islands, I went to the Big Island uh, and lived in Hilo for a couple of years, went to the University of Hawaii at Hilo. I realized it rained too much. So I was like, I got to get out of here. And I'm, I moved to Oahu here in Honolulu. And uh, it, I think it was like the first couple of days I was here that I was introduced to Rich. Um, like back in like um, 99 or 2000. Yeah, so pretty much ever since meeting Rich and having a Cicelina, Rich and I have been uh, uh, fishing or dive buddies ever since then. That's awesome, man. So um, tell me the type of work that you were doing with, with Noah. So actually that, that work specifically 
um, we just published last week. So let me, oh. yeah. Just, so that's a two-decade project, basically. Um, wow. So we were we were diving these offshore seamount banks in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands that come up to 60 meters at the top, and we were deploying these sensors to track the foraging habits of the endangered Hawaiian monk seal. Uh, the, you know, there's only less than 2,000 monk seals left on, in Hawaii, critically endangered. And uh, in the early 2000s, nobody really knew where or what they were eating. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Which is pretty crazy. <laughs> and kind of important if you're trying to protect the species, you got to know what it's eating. So, <laughs> so we were putting these... these uh, Basically, they were, they were concrete, homemade concrete rocks that I would make in this like playpen sand pit. And they had these tripod legs of other rocks. It was a flat rock with a tripod of other rocks. One of those legs had a, uh, a little switch sensor in it. And what would happen is we would throw these into the areas that we thought the seals were foraging and we would see if the rock got flipped over. And by basically timing and counting uh, the rock flipping over, we could uh, come up with an estimate of the, of the foraging of the seals. Because the, the only other thing that would potentially flip over those rocks is a shark, but doubtful that they would bother. And it's it's generally, those banks are too deep and too round for like a swell or a wave to to mess them up. So it was, it was, it, it was a crazy idea and it actually worked. And we finally, after 20, almost 20 years, published the paper last week. Oh, wow. Is that normal for for that length of time? It's not necessarily normal, but that depends. <laughs> so we, we, have, we, have, we, we have new species of fish that we discovered almost 20 years ago that we still haven't described. Not because we're lazy or anything, it's because we have further questions. Like we want to know if it occurs in other places before we actually publish the description. But an ecology paper like that, uh, it takes a lot of statistical analysis, and uh, there were multiple people involved. So yeah, it, it, and and also you know NOAA is federal government, and things are are a little slower. But uh, <laughs> and that's no offense to anybody that works at NOAA. I'm just it's just an observation I have. But uh, I'm glad it finally got published, and I'm I'm, uh, I'm grateful to uh, the work that the um, my boss at the time who was the lead author on the paper put into it finally awesome, got it out. awesome who came up with the idea for the the rocks flipping over that that was also my boss at the time is a guy named frank Parrish, and it was kind of a, a crazy idea but it worked it's cool but yeah we're all about crazy ideas though that's that's <laughs> that's kind of uh so i'll tell you about this new department we have at bishop museum that rich and i started called the uh, Center for the Exploration of Coral Reef Ecosystems. And it's basically taking our track record of exploring deep coral reefs and, and turning it into an actual initiative here at Bishop Museum. And the, and the museum's very excited about that. Basically, it's, it's, it's not necessarily doing anything differently than we've, or, than we've always done, which is to take the latest technology and apply it in novel ways to explore coral reefs. And so for the past 20 years, that's mostly been using advanced rebreathers but moving forward, we're, and actually right now, we're working with Bill Stone's other company, um, Sunfish Inc., to develop 
autonomous underwater vehicles that work with us as a team to push exploration even further. So this X-Core initiative is basically taking the latest and greatest and applying it in, in ways that will expand our knowledge, expand uh, our efficiency and uh, you know break barriers in exploration of coral reefs. Yeah, no, that's 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 great. Can you speak a little bit more about the, the sunfish development and what's going on there? Um, Bill would definitely be a better one, but I can tell you from my experience. So we've, we had it out here last September, actually, like a, exactly a year ago this week, we had it out uh, in Hawaii and we were using it off my boat as a, as a test platform. And, uh, it's, it's an awesome tool. I'm, I'm sure you, you may have seen some of the ca- the cave work that they're, they've done with it in Florida. What Rich and I are hoping, hoping is, you know, it's just as effective as, as a mapping tool or a basically an autonomous robotic scout for us finding the dive sites that we want to dive because generally on a lot of the places that rich and i dive around the pacific nobody's ever been to these depths at those places so we do a lot of blind drops uh not knowing what we're going to find so we could we could do you know a whole five hours worth of decompression for and and not have any have found anything on the bottom of scientific interest. So our goal with Sunfish is it's awesome, the the cave exploration aspects of it, but we want to turn it into something that we can throw over the side of the boat. It It can go down the reef slope or drop off and scout out the fishiest looking places for us or the coolest cave or something like that. And then it can come back up and we download the data and review that data find like in the video that it's recorded oh yeah this place looks awesome um the robot will, will it, you know it's, it has ways of knowing where it is underwater so we could have a pretty you know close approximation of where that spot is what i anticipate is you do that for a couple days at the start of an expedition and then you go and hit the best spots instead of these blind drops where not not necessarily a waste of time we can always be productive but we tend to get more productive as an expedition goes on as we get used to an area but if we could have a scout that could go find the best areas straight off the bat then we could just hit those and be even more productive so and then our other our other hope with with the robot is in a future iteration of it is uh for it to act almost as a robotic dive buddy that is communicating with our rebreathers wirelessly underwater and transmitting information up to the surface and potentially carrying bailout. So it's like a robotic bailout uh, Sherpa. <laughs> that, yeah, that, there's plenty of benefits there. That's awesome. So I obviously know I've done a little bit of the reading, but any any listeners out there, tell me a little bit more about like the, the Bishop Museum, what what you guys got going on there, your role there. How, how did you end up there? Like exactly, you know, I mean, I know you were the Jack Randall, but you know, how did you end up with your first position there? Yeah, so we, we are the uh, the cultural and uh, natural history museum of Hawaii, well over 100 years old. In the department uh, that Rich and I work in, we have what's probably the, the largest collection of Indo-Pacific coral reef fishes in jars of any place in the world. So we right, right behind me, behind this wall, is uh, I think about 140,000 fishes in jars of alcohol. And, and most of those are what we call, well, not all of them, but the, 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 the most important ones, there's an entire wall, and it's mostly because of the work of Jack Randall. Those are the specimens that we call the types. So the, the types are the original specimens of a species of fish, the ones that the name of a new species is applied to. 
And those are like, I kind of liken those to like the first edition of a book or like the master copy. And then, so yeah, we're very proud of those and we take very good care of those. And then we we also have uh, specimens from all over the world, but mostly the Indo-Pacific, which is the region from the, the east coast of Africa to the west coast of South America and everything in between. And then in between that, you know, is the Central Pacific and the Coral Triangle and all that stuff. That's that's what really our focus. There's other museums that have larger collections of fishes, but they're more diverse. They have freshwater fishes and uh, Caribbean, Atlantic, Antarctic fish. But we we are very focused on Indo-Pacific and coral reefs. So I've ha- I've ha- I've worn many hats and had. Uh, many different jobs and over the years but there's always in the back of my mind has been bishop museum i've always ever since that first meeting with jack randall here when i was in high school i've been involved with expeditions even you know starting out doing expeditions probably the first 15 years i was doing expeditions with rich i didn't even work at bishop museum i was i would just join them as a uh, like an affiliate researcher or, or associate researcher. Uh, yeah, it was right around the beginning of COVID when uh, things kind of just lined up where it was a good time for me to actually come on board as, as proper staff at the Bishop Museum. And I'm, I'm an ichthyology research specialist. Richard is the curator of fishes. Um, so he, he's technically my boss. <laughs> Tell me about the feeling. Like, were, was it really exciting when you know to be able to work somewhere that you've just known about and it had such a big impact in your life? It's it's super exciting because it kind of formalizes all these ideas that Rich and I have been bouncing back and forth against each other for years. Like this X Core initiative. I th- I don't think without the backing of the Bishop of of Bishop Museum, I don't think we would get this thing going just on our own. So it's it's great to like officially be working in that capacity to build this thing that we've talked about for so long. As much as it seems we've explored this planet, there's uh, there's still plenty of exploration to do, especially in, in some of the more remote parts of the Pacific and and especially on deep reefs where we need, we need these, uh, you know, rebreathers and other advanced technologies to access. We're still on every expedition finding new species that nobody's ever seen before, including my, my, my last trip to um, American Samoa just a couple months ago. Found a new species of wrasse that I'm going to be naming after my boy. Oh, <laughs> do you want to tell me a little bit about that expedition? Yeah, so that's also Noah, but it's, uh, we, we, we have this project, Noah funded a NOAA has a program of funding for um, coral reef ecosystem studies. And uh, basically, they it's a grant that allows us to study what we call mesophotic, these deep coral reefs. And uh, because it's NOAA funding, U.S. federal funding has to be used in U.S. waters. And American Samoa has deep coral reefs in U.S. waters uh, in the Pacific. So it's a, lo- it's a, it's a long multi-year project where uh, Bishop Museum is just one of the partners. We, we, we also work with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, NOAA itself. We have partners from Old Dominion University on the mainland. And we've done, we were kind of supposed to start right when COVID started. So it, it, the project got kind of held off, but we've done three trips um, in the last year and they've all been very successful. And, and the goal is to assess the biodiversity and the overall health of the deep coral reefs in American Samoa. So part of that is perfect for what Rich and I do, which is finding out what actually exists there. In, in a in a spot like that where nobody's done deep diving and that, that's kind of, that's what I see my role is on, on on most of these dive projects that we do 
even when partnered with other people, my, my role is go find out what's there and, and officially document it, like either with a specimen or with an image. But yeah, it was a, I think it was the first trip that I was on last January, um, the very first dive. Uh, I noticed a, a, a ras, a little flasher ras that uh, I did not recognize, and it turned out the more the more the more dives we did, the more abundant I realized it was. So this fish is everywhere in American Samoa, but not until you get below 50 meters. Between 50 meters and about 90 meters, it's probably the most abundant fish in all of American Samoa, and it turns <laughs> out that it's also a new species of fish. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, and so you're naming it after your boy. Have you told, like, I'm sure you told him. How does he feel? Well, he's only two. Yeah, he's only <laughs> two. He doesn't, he doesn't quite, he's seen the fish. He, he likes the fish, but he, he, he won't understand for a while. You have a, um, so is that, is that, do you have only one, one boy? You have a, any other children? Just one, uh, two year old boy. Okay, cool, cool. No, I'm sure he's gonna, Hopefully that's, uh, you know, as he grows older, he can recognize how awesome that is. So I, I think he will. Something. He's, 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 uh, he's also already interested in fishes in the ocean and loves going out on the boat. And his, his, my wife, his mother, is also a marine biologist. So Oh, cool, uh, cool. He's going to have a hard time avoiding it. <laughs> <laughs> so I met you for the first time uh, was that like a few weeks a month ago um for the 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 round table that we did on the future of rebreathers um at the time you had an expedition that you were supposed to go on but it got canceled uh is there is that anything that you can talk about or is that kind of a hush hush thing no it's not hush hush so that was a part of this multi-year NOAA project that we have. And uh, we actually, we hadn't even planned to go on this uh, this August trip, but it was it was kind of a, uh, it was a bonus. For the, the multi-year NOAA funding, we fly down, we bring all our equipment, we, lo- we hire a local boat, and the logistics, we have the logistics wired. It's like clockwork now. It's uh, super efficient. We have an awesome, uh, there's a, a Kiwi guy down there that has an awesome power catamaran that's set up for easily five or six rebreather divers. So we have a good setup, but it just happened that Noah was gonna have one of their research vessels in the area in August. And we were invited to potentially use the ship to uh, go to some of the more remote islands that we couldn't access from shore-based operations. Unfortunately, it all kind of fell apart at the last minute. We, we, we were still planning a shore-based trip in, in January and a, and a few trips next year, but I don't think we'll be doing it from a, a large research vessel down there. So is that is that kind of a common thing in expeditions, just things canceling last minute or not, no, not really. Um, that was kind of a <laughs> that was kind of a weird one. Uh, I've never in twenty five years of doing expeditions around the Pacific that that was probably a first. Normally, you know, things come up all the time, but you work through them. Um, this one came up the the, the issue that Noah was having. Uh, that prevented us from joining them was so last minute and so abrupt that there was no, there was no getting around it. And the way that they they have a very busy schedule, so when they when they plan these uh, basically multi-leg research trips with these with their research vessels, like if something messes up that prevents your section of time from working out, they have other things planned right behind you, so they can't shift your time or change dates. 
It's just the way it is. Normally, when we're in charge of our own expedition and we're in charge of the timing and everything like that, like, if, if, you know, things pop up, hurdles, hiccups, whatever, we just work through them and shift things around until we get it done. Do you have a, are there any highlight expeditions, any ones that stand out above the rest? Uh, yeah, actually, about 15 years ago, Rich and our, our, our friend John Earl and I, we did a trip across Micronesia with the BBC and filmed a series, a, a three-part television series with the BBC called Pacific Abyss. And I think it's available online somewhere. You can probably find it. And, and we, it was all it was all rebreathers. Um, even the cameramen were down there at 400 feet with us on uh, Mark 15s with uh, custom at the, at the time top of the line camera systems to film us. That was a kind of that was kind of a a very eye opening experience because it was the first time that we had a ship in the Central Pacific and we could go do. Uh, these technical dives at some of the most remote places with you know there's no there's no airport so you can't fly in and we we, as a fish nerd it's when we started realizing that there's some weird transitions happening as you move east to west in the pacific and uh, that was kind of a highlight trip because we we started in chuk truck lagoon chuk and we ended in palau and we so we went from chuk to pulawat to Fice to Ulithi to Yap to Palau. So this is a long trek uh, over the course of a month. And uh, we found some some of the most conspicuous, like jaw-dropping new species we've ever found, we found on that trip. That was, that was just kind of a, an eye-opener into how diverse and how complex deep coral reefs are in the Pacific. And ever since then, we've, you know, we, 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 we kind of try to emulate that trip. <laughs> Uh, was was there a so there was obviously a pretty big crew that had, that went on that trip. I mean, the cameramen are on rebreather. Yeah, so they had they had the full the BBC had their own production team and all that kind of stuff. We but they left us alone to kind of just do our fish nerd thing, which was the cool thing. And there were some really great guys. The late Bob Cranston was a ca- uh, cameraman for us, and, and the host uh, of the show was uh, uh, Mike Degree, who unfortunately also passed away. Not too long ago, but it was it was a really really good trip. But they're all I mean, anytime we find a new species of fish, it's like memorable. Like it's uh, like I'm not saying that was like by like the overall best one, but like I, I think as long as we go, still get to go to cool places and and dive cool places and 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 see and find fishes that nobody's ever seen before. Uh, that, that's that's all that matters to me. It's fun, and then sharing it. Obviously, like it's 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 cool. It's 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 cool to and all to find these things but then to you know share it with the world and, and with science present it properly that's the reward yeah yeah no for sure so i mean I, I don't know how it works i'm assuming you have future expeditions plans is there an upcoming one that you're pretty excited about just in the past couple of days i've been formulating a, a pretty cool plan to a very remote island in the central pacific that nobody's ever done this kind of diving at but i'm not going to name that island yet <laughs> <laughs> But other than that, we have a couple trips to uh, uh, Samoa in the works for early next year. And uh, we're actually, Rich and I are going to work with some fish biologists uh, in the East Pacific, off the the Pacific coast of Panama in February, hopefully, which is not... not not our normal area as uh, Pacific Island dudes, but it could be some really interesting fish. So I won't won't pry into the name of the island, but... Uh, I do have a question. So what does it take to, like, 
what are you doing to plan for a new expedition? Like what kind of right? That's that's what that's the tricky part. So for for any of these islands in, in the Pacific, uh, logistics are incredibly hard. So you you uh, you you first obviously you have to make contact with the uh, with the local government and get the pr- proper permissions. But then you have to figure out how to get your stuff there. And it's, it's a very convoluted process that can take a very long time. I, I, we, did a, we did a trip a few years ago to the Solomon Islands. And we basically, we had to ship our stuff from... So the, uh, by stuff, I mean helium, oxygen, bailout bottles, rebreather Zorb, everything you would need for consumables on the expedition got to package up on a couple pallets and ship to wherever you're going and it's pretty convoluted like when we did the solomon's trip our stuff left honolulu shipped to los angeles from los angeles it went to fiji from fiji it went to new zealand from new zealand it went up to australia and then to the solomon islands and it took like eight months for our stuff to arrive and in the entire time we're just crossing our fingers that it actually gets to where we're we want it to go. So there's all kinds of convoluted pathways of getting things around the Pacific, and that's always the tricky part. And then once you figure that out, you got to figure out if the if the airline is going to continue flying to the place you want to be going. That's another issue. <laughs> okay. So, and then um, and, and I don't I don't even know why this just popped in my head, but like so obviously I'm assuming like you're you're bringing your own provisions as in as in food and things like that or, or, or like how, how does that even work out not not necessarily um most of the places that we do these expeditions because we do have to fly in because we don't you know in, in an ideal world we would have our own fully funded research vessel and just go do this all the time <laughs> but that's not that's not reality at the moment so we we tend to choose places that do have a runway so we can at least fly in. So there's, I mean, there's normal, normal, normally some kind of amenities of varying scales. (laughs) (laughs) But almost always zero compressed oxygen, zero compressed helium or any uh, rebreather consumables. So that, that's where you got to start planning way ahead of time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I couldn't. I couldn't even imagine. Yeah, that's got to be really. So you're. Are you? You're bringing. You. I mean, at this point, you have to bring a compressor or things like that. I mean, the whole the whole nine. It depends on the island. Some islands do have, uh, you know, at least open circuit dive operations, and we can we've worked with them in the past. But yeah, we have a few. I think we we have two electrical powered um, portable compressors and a gas powered compressor now, and multiple booster pumps for mixing gas and boosting oxygen and we depending on where we go we, we will bring all that with us if we need to which is not cheap either so that's the the travel expenses on that must be must be a shock to look at i'm sure yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean it's not it's not uncommon it's not uncommon for us to have over a thousand pounds of excess baggage between like three or four guys again if we had our own boat we'd just throw it on the boat but it, you gotta fly you gotta fly with it to get to these islands so Wow. Yeah. That, no. That's that's got to be a daunting task for sure. So, um, in this modern day world, what advice would you have for a young and up and coming ichthyologist? Or, or actually, I should, let me rephrase that. Um, someone that wants to get into ichthyology. I would say start studying genetics early, like as soon as you can. 
because that is becoming more and more of a tool that we depend on as we figure out the relationships between different populations of fishes. It's also, I was actually just having a conversation with Rich about this this morning about it's it's become very common for us to include some kind of uh, genetic analysis in the the species descriptions of the new species we write, and it, like I wouldn't feel right publishing a species description without some kind of discussion of the gene genetic relationship to other species. So the mo the earlier you can learn that, the better. When I was first starting out. 25 years ago out of high school like none of that existed like it that was the early days of of um the type of genetics that like i think even high schoolers are doing now but back then it wasn't the thing so i would say do that and and stay passionate like there's still a lot of cool fish out there and a lot that people haven't seen yet in 2023 we have more tools than ever with technology and auvs and the rebreathers and submersibles and rovs and camera systems like so many cool toy toys and tools now it's awesome <laughs> <laughs> awesome man awesome and then um any any final thoughts any any last words of advice for the divers or rebreather divers or ichthyologists let me back up to i made a statement really early in our conversation today that i was a fish nerd first and then a technical diver second i think you got to keep people need to keep that in mind the the type of diving that we do does have risks and doing it and doing this kind of diving for diving sake isn't quite enough you need to, everybody needs to make their own kind of personal risk assessment judgment call about whether or not their passion is being fulfilled through the diving well i have this conversation with people pretty often and if it weren't for my interest in fish there's no way i would be diving a rebreather at 150 meters <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so there's no way it's not worth it <laughs> so that's my advice is just everybody if anybody wants to get into this kind of diving make sure you do it for the right reasons and and you, you make that risk assessment for yourself awesome awesome well, I really, really appreciate you coming on to the podcast today. Thank you very much, especially, you know, Saturday on in, in or yeah, Saturday, correct? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, the time difference threw me off a little bit sometimes. Like Hawaii still throws me off. I'm used to the states like California, you know, like from the Pacific to the East Coast. But for some reason, the time difference in Hawaii always throws me off and I have to like double check, triple check before. But thank you very much yeah, no for worries. coming on to the podcast. Yeah, it's been great. Oh, it's, um, I'm glad, you, uh, glad we were able to do this. Offcasting, a scuba podcast.